Good morning, dear friends. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in a sermon series called Simply Questions. And may I say again that it is okay to have questions. It's not just okay, it's good. It is natural, it is healthy to have questions. After I preached uh, two weeks ago on why do we believe the Bible is the word of God, some people had questions. That's good. I'm glad that they asked, and that's proper to do so. I certainly have doubts and questions. I've been walking with the Lord for more than 40 years, and I'm a seminary professor and I'm an interim pastor, and I have lots of doubts and questions. So don't go underground with your questions. Doubts are like spoiled children. If you ignore them, they will hit you. So feel free to ask your questions. Today's question may be the most persistent on our list and maybe the most vexing of all the questions, and it is simply, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? An early missionary to Tierra del Fuego told about a ritual that the people of that land had that caught him off guard. Tierra del Fuego is at the southern tip of South America. It is a barren, treeless, wind-swept, bleak, gray land. And the indigenous people of that country, every morning when the sun rose... They would greet the dawn with howls and shrieks. And it was very unnerving, you can imagine, for this missionary. He didn't find out the reason for this until much later. The idea was that so much misery had crowded into the lives of those people in that bleak land that they saw the start of each new day as the renewal of their misery. We were separated by over a hundred years and 8,000 miles from those people. But there's someone here today that says, yep, that's about right. Each day, each dawn, announces more grief. The theologians call this the problem of evil, or the problem of evil and suffering. And our sermon series phrases it this way, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And we might add, why do good things happen to bad people? (laughs) And it is a persistent 
and vexing question. Now, you should know that all of the world's religions and the great philosophies wrestle with this question. Christianity is not alone. And each religion, each philosophy has its own approach. I don't think any of them are deeply, fully, completely satisfying. For example, I'll give you just one example. The Eastern religions, we would call them pantheistic monism. Pantheism, all is God. Monism, all is one. I know I'm, I'm painting with very broad brush strokes. I'm lumping a lot together. But in general, the worldview we call pantheistic monism approaches and answers our question, you know, why, why do bad things happen to good people? And their answer is, suffering is an illusion, See, all is one. It's called Maya. Death and life. Ultimately, there's no distinction. All is one. Sin and righteousness. It's all one. Suffering and pleasure. Any distinction you see, any perception you have of a difference is just that. It's your perception. It's just in your mind. It's an illusion. So the goal to, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, problem we feel, this angst we feel about why do bad things happen to good people, the, the goal and the solution is give up the quest, give up the illusion, come to peace. There's no difference. You need enlightenment. And when you are enlightened, you'll see this is not a problem. All is one. This is not the Bible's approach, answer, to our question. The Word of God says there really is evil. Not an illusion. There really is suffering. The torture of animals and the abuse of children and the genocide of the people in Rwanda is objectively evil. It's not just in your mind. But that's one solution. Not, in my opinion, not fully satisfying. But all of the world's religions and the great philosophies wrestle with this. Now, I think it's fair to say that um, Christianity may actually have the hardest job in wrestling with this issue. Because our faith says, it holds three truths, three propositions. It says that God is all-powerful, right? God is pure love, Right? And, <laughs> and, oy, 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 oy. see, if God was not all-powerful, then we could understand why bad things happen to good people, because, you know, God's heart is in the right place, he loves us, he cares, but uh, uh, rats, he just can't do anything about it. Poor God, he just can't handle the killing fields of Cambodia and dictators like Pol Pot 
if God were all-powerful but not pure love, you know, kind of had a mean streak in him, kind of a calloused, you know, then we could understand why bad things happen to good people. It's like he can do something about it, but he doesn't do something about it. You know? Christianity says, all-powerful, all-love, In the 1970s or 80s, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a bestseller, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. His solution, his answer to the question was that God is limited. He's not all-powerful. He put it this way. I recognize his limitations. He is limited in what he can do by the laws of nature and the evolution of human freedom, uh, moral freedom. Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect, even when he's let you down and disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in his world? and permitting some of those things to happen to you. Can you learn to love and forgive him? Sorry, next slide. Can you, at the end there, can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? Now, I have to speak humbly here because Kushner wrote this book after a great personal tragedy. If I remember right, his son was killed in an auto accident. God protect me and defend me from such a fiery trial. But at the same time, as your teacher with a stewardship from God to declare his word, I have to say humbly, this is not a Christian response. The Bible teaches that God is all-powerful, all-loving, and suffering and evil exist. So I'd like to answer the question as well as we can in a few Minutes, it's a big topic, by giving you three biblical responses, three biblical answers. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? If you're taking notes, each of the, the responses begins with P to help you, kind of a mnemonic device. Here's the first biblical response, first answer to our question. Number one, God's patience. Let me explain. A pain-free universe is a high value with God. He created the universe that way. Garden of Eden, you know, happiness, no death, no brokenness. That's, that's, how, that's, that's how he created it. And he said, it is good. We're headed back to that the next age, when he will recreate the universe. No sin, no brokenness, no evil in the world. This is his plan. This is his heart. But currently, 
a higher good, a different value, supersedes a pain-free universe. And that is our salvation. That's what he's about. That's the business he's about today. Rescuing you and me. And in order to grant salvation, it's a gift of God, in order to give us that gift, it requires free will. We have to repent and believe. Now, along with free will comes the possibility of all the bad stuff we do and the corruption and the politicians and the wars and, you know, all that bad stuff. Not, God's not for that. He's, he's, he's going he's to bring justice. He's going to redo things, go back to Eden, go forward to the, the final eschaton, the glory of heaven. But currently, he is granting us patiently the ability to choose him or reject him. That's a tough biblical response to why does he allow bad things to happen. I think it's, it's wrapped up in this issue of free will. So much of the suffering of this world is a result of human choices. Not all of it, but a whole lot of it. You know, war and everything. God will one day put it all down. But currently, currently the scripture puts it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God allows free will so that we will repent and believe, but with that gift of freedom comes the fact that we can also choose to do evil. And much of the suffering of this world is the result of human choice. Mine and yours and all those bad people out there. And that is a partial biblical response to our tough question. Why does he allow this? May I give you a second response? It begins with P also. God's power. Here's what I mean. God is so great. He is so powerful. He is so far above us. He can use even suffering for good. Well, that's a hard truth. But I think it's a biblical truth. God is like the great judo master. Does anybody know judo? I don't know judo, but I understand that the essence of judo is using your opponent's moves and momentum and shift in body weight against them. So, Satan says, okay, I'm gonna, I, I hate you guys, and I'm more powerful than you, and I hate God, and I'm going to get you. So I'm going to flip you this way. Well, God says, you go, go ahead and give it a try. Go ahead and flip. And he just keeps going with that momentum and flips Satan on his back and brings good even out of very hard circumstances. 
Now, I hesitate to speak this word to you. God can, you, can bring good out of evil. He can, he's so great. It just, if we're not careful, it just sounds like behind every cloud is a silver lining and smile and uh, don't worry, be happy. And so we make this biblical affirmation with humility and with a sober-minded spirit. It's a hard truth, but it is a biblical truth. Can I show it to you? We, we see this. We see this all over the place in the Bible, but it's sort of concentrated in the book of 2 Corinthians because 2 Corinthians is sort of Paul's autobiography, and he talks a lot about his own sufferings as an apostle. They beat me. They whipped me. I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the ocean, uh, the open sea. I'm in danger in, on the land. I'm in danger on the water. I'm in danger in the country. I'm in danger in the city. <sighs> And God can use that. He did use it for good. I'll show you. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. You know how Jesus suffered? They spit on him, you know, the crown of thorns, and they rejected him, and they made fun of him. Oh, he's, he's, he's illegitimate, you know, all that stuff. We apostles, we, that's what we, we carry that around with us. We, we also suffer. So that, don't pass over these important uh, conjunctions, these logical markers We carry around. We suffer. Bad things happen to us. I'm beaten with rods. I'm shipwrecked. The bad stuff. In order that, for the purpose of the life of Jesus may be revealed in this old body. He was saying that all this bad stuff that happens to me because I'm an apostle getting beat up and all that, they stoned him, all this bad stuff. It's for the purpose of revealing the power, the strength, the love, the consistency, the salvation, the life of God. And when we suffer, we can reveal that power in a way that's really different or maybe impossible than when things are going well. You're healthy, you're wealthy, everything's good, everything's alive. When you reveal life, it just seems like connected to those circumstances. When you're suffering and there's equanimity and peace and joy and life and the life of God, it reveals something about our great God. It's a little bit clearer here. We who are alive are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake. So that, there's our, there's our key word, so that for the purpose of that this life may be revealed in our mortal body. All this, all this bad stuff, all this suffering is for your benefit. So that <laughs> the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. 
God is so great that he can use even human weakness and suffering and frailty and all this bad stuff to reveal his glory and draw us into that life. I'll give you a specific example also from 2 Corinthians. It's a very specific, chapter 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, the Apostle Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What was this thorn in the flesh? We don't really know. Probably some physical ailment. Some people say Paul was disfigured or Some people say he had epilepsy or something was wrong with his eyes. Anyway, some bad thing, some some suffering. He calls it a thorn in the flesh from Satan. And three, he said, man, I was begging God, please take it away. Heal me, chain me three times. And he said, uh, my grace is sufficient. But this thing was given to me in order for the purpose of to keep me from becoming conceited. See, Paul had received all these visions, and he was a lofty apostle, and God's favor was on him. He could have gotten really proud about that. In order for the purpose of a higher good, you with me? In order to keep me from becoming conceited, in order to conform me to the image of Christ, in order to help me grow up, in order to purify my spirit, in order to sanctify me, God allowed messenger of Satan to torment me. Oh man, this is a difficult truth for our culture, isn't it? It's probably difficult for all cultures, but the American culture, you know, what what is our mindset? We are discipled to believe you have certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and, yeah, baby, the pursuit of happiness. It is your right. Who says? And uh, pop culture picks up on this, this, this worldview that we have. You know, what does the old McDonald's commercial used to say? You deserve a break today. Well, who says? You deserve? What does that mean? You deserve a break I don't know, but I know we believe it. And so to hear this biblical teaching that God is so great that he can use even suffering and evil for a greater good, boy, that's a hard truth for us. But I would say even in our culture, even in our culture, we recognize that some higher good, some ultimate good may involve suffering. For example, if you want to get in shape, <laughs> you're going to suffer. <laughs> But it's worth it. It's, it's part of the process. Because, you know, you have this higher good. If you want to earn... Hey, baby, there's going to be suffering. But it's worth it, right? Because it's a higher good. If you want to save that child from the burning car, it's probably going to mean you're going to suffer. But uh, it's part of the process, and it's worth it. There's a higher good that you volunteer for that suffering. 
And so this biblical teaching says that God's power, his sovereignty is so great. He's like a judo master. And he can use even bad things for his glory and our good. The Apostle Paul said our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What is this eternal glory? Well, it is to know Christ and to be conformed to his image. And how does suffering form us into the image of Christ? Well, think of what it teaches us. It teaches us our frailty. It teaches us you need a shepherd. Smallest microbe, the most unlikely mechanical accident, the most unlooked for terrorist attack, teaches us some wisdom, our frailty. It's hard to learn that when things are going well, when you're on top of the world and you're healthy and everybody. But suffering shows us, it opens our eyes, it gives us wisdom. Suffering shows us our finality. You're going to die. But hardly ever think about that when you're feeling good. But there's great wisdom in knowing an end is coming, a future is coming after that. So the apostle says, these light and momentary troubles, don't you love it? <laughs> light and momentary are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And then one third, a final response, his, uh, his patience, God's power, and number three, God's personal experience. That is to say, Jesus suffered. He knows. Been there, done that. This response, this biblical perspective, does not answer the question, why do we suffer? But it does give us strength to persevere because we know that we're not alone. And whatever bitter medicine the Lord hands for us to drink, he himself has drained it dry. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, rejected by men. The old spiritual says, nobody knows the trouble I seen, nobody knows except Jesus. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.
So that, so that, for the purpose of, with the result that, you will not depart from our most holy faith. May I conclude with a parable. This is the parable of the monk, the bird, and the fox. High in the Alps, the mountains of Europe, was a monastery. And every day, one of the monks, one of the brothers that lived in the monastery, would make his way down, down, down into the valley below to hold services in the little chapel. And one day, one of the monks left the monastery at an early hour in order to arrive for morning services. The path was frosty and it was bitter cold. And on the path, he saw a bird, half expired from the cold. And because the monk was a good man, he picked up that bird and put it inside his habit. And next to his body, his body, he warmed it, and it was able to survive. By the time he arrived in the valley below, it was wriggling around, but it still wasn't strong enough to just uh, to, to be let go. But then the bell of the chapel sounded, and it was time for services, and what to do? He couldn't go in with his wriggling bird, but he couldn't survive on its own. What to do? What to do? Just then... Providentially, a dairy farmer was driving his cows out to pasture through the cobblestone uh, square of the town, and one of the dairy cows deposited a large steaming cow pie on the cobblestones. And because the monk was a good man, he did not hesitate. He took the bird and stuck it in the cow pie. Now, contrary to what you might think, the warmth of this gelatinous mixture uh, caused it to revive further. But now it was stuck, and it began squawking and wriggling, but it couldn't get out. But just then, an old fox that was patrolling the stone wall of the graveyard heard the racket and looked over and saw the bird and jumped down into the square and snapped it up and ate it. Now, there are two morals to this story. Number one, he who puts you in it is not necessarily your enemy. Number two, he who gets you out of it is not necessarily your friend. And maybe a third moral. On the whole, when you find yourself up to your neck in it, the best policy may be to keep your beak shut. 
or maybe not. Find the right place, the right people for your questions and lamentations and doubts. Heavenly Father, I pray for the people here who are suffering. Help them in faith to cling to you and to pour out their hearts to you and to remain your disciples even when it's hard. And by your power and presence and superintending Holy Spirit, please form in them the life and the character of Christ just as he learned obedience from what he suffered, may we also. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. If you could please rise with me as we sing of this guy.